Hi, I'm Mikey. Welcome to Everything Aviation Podcast. I'm a microlight pilot and I've had the privilege of flying some very, very cool aircraft over the years. I've been around the aviation industry. I really love hearing people's stories and I thought other people would love it too. So why not put all these stories in one place and talk to some very, very cool aviators. All that needs for you now is to sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Welcome back to episode 20 of Everything Aviation Podcast. The times that we are living in have now are very dark for everyone in the industry of aviation. As confidence knocking and horrible as it may be, we must not give up and keep striving for dreams. My next guest is the epitome of never giving up and showing perseverance does pay off. It's Sam Worthington Lease, or as some people may know him as Pilot 396. I'll just give you a quick rundown on Sam's journey so far. In 2007, 2008, Sam was turned down by the RAF. In 2009, he got in. 2011, he was made redundant with only two flying hours to his name. Later in 2011, he joined Cab Air to learn to, to fly, and they went bust, losing all the money he had invested in it. 2012, he flew first solo as a modular student. 2013, he flew his first instructional flight after gaining his PPL aerobatics rating, tailwheel rating, CPL, MEIR, and flight instructor in a very, very quick 13 months. 2015, started flying for Ultimate High and Goodwood Flying School. 2016, founded the Hawker Typhoon Preservation Group and gained a display authority on the Harvard T6. 2018, he was asked to join the aircraft restoration company and secured a job with, as a first officer with TUI. 2019, he finished his base training with two. He got married, participated in DAX over Normandy and flew a Spitfire solo. And this year has completed his ATPL skills test. Sam, welcome on the show. Hello. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's just quite an introduction. Thanks. I'll just add on the end of that. This year, just had a baby as well. So there you go. Top it's it all, all go. It's all go. Yeah. Nothing else to do in lockdown, you see. So... <laughs> <laughs> love it Sam fitting all this in must be must be really tough but where did the interest in aviation come from so uh, my granddad flew during the second world war uh, he was a fighter pilot he flew the hurricane and the spitfire and then the typhoon and so he died there when I was uh, about four so I never really got to ask him the questions that I probably would have liked to as, a, as an older kid growing up and a younger teenager, you know, getting into flying. But uh, yeah, for some reason, it passed from him to me, I say, even though he passed away when I was about four, and I have just had, I don't know, just had the bug forever. As long as I can remember, you know, you hear a plane, look up in the sky, always wanting to go to the air shows, just aviation's just there, you know? Brilliant. And did you start at a young age? No. That's the weird thing. I was always really fascinated in it, you know, making little models, drawing airplanes on, you know, rubbish drawings of airplanes and looking up in the sky and whatever. But um, growing up, it was kind of like uh, aviation wasn't really accessible. I didn't really know it was an option. I guess you could say like a bit of a naive young kid and young teenager. I didn't, didn't really know it was a thing. But I always had this passion to want to do it. And then as I got a little bit older through my teens, I, I realised that joining the Air Force was a thing you could do it you know people did do that and I sort of started looking into it and I sort of wanted to do that as I was getting an older teenager but then when I was 15 there was a careers fair at my school and I went to see the Air Force stand and I was quite tall I was about six foot tall then and I said to the guy on the stand oh I, I want to join the Air Force you know, I want to be a pilot what do I need to do and he just literally took one look at, at sort of up and down me sized me up and he went forget about it mate you'll be too tall oh. I was like all oh, right oh okay and, and sort of put the idea out of my head for quite a few years 
And after college, um, a couple of my mates from school and college were in the Air Force who'd got in. And I was just chatting to them and they said, oh, no, that's rubbish. You know, we've got guys here that are six foot four, whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, you'll be fine. So I, I sort of researched it properly this time, went and did some visits, et cetera, and, and set about applying. And then that application took three years. Oh, wow. In my first actual flight was a little trial lesson. I think I was 16 or 17 and uh, thinking, right, this is going to be really good. And it was in a really battered old Cessna 152. And I was thinking it's going to be like a Spitfire. And uh, I went for this trial lesson. I was just a bit sort of oh really is that it is that what flying's like oh, maybe i won't bother um and so so it wasn't the best start yeah, I, guess. <laughs> I might say yeah and then what um actually made you go for for the raf uh, for after you were put off you spoke to your mates when did you start thinking of, of oh gosh you gonna put an application in here so um it was just after i finished college um we went on holiday uh, my mum could tell I was a bit down and sort of down in the dumps, you know, finished college. The Air Force had kind of been taken off the table almost. And, uh, but she knew I really loved flying. And she said to me, oh, why don't you read this book, First Light, uh, by Jeffrey Wellham? Brilliant book. Uh, I, and I didn't really read that much growing up as a kid, you know, um, shame to say. Didn't really read that much. So we went on holiday, took this book, and I read it start to finish in about two days wow. and then I just came downstairs to dinner one night after i had been reading it and I said yeah I definitely want to learn to fly definitely want to get in the air force and I want to make it happen I just read that book and it totally just reignited everything that had kind of been I don't know pushed down I suppose just sort of just push you know when you're told you can't do something you just have to quash those feelings which I'd yeah. kind of done and then that book just reignited it all and it just brought it right back up and um, I literally got home and filled out the application form and sent it off like the next week. Amazing. And um, it, it kind of just went from there. Then I, I started doing some gliding. That was really, really good. Probably the best way you can learn to fly on gliders. Well, the application with, excuse me, with the Air Force, uh, you know, took its time, which it did. Brilliant. And you, you yeah. get in on your first go, did you? Say again, sorry. You didn't get in on your first go, did you? No, I didn't. Um, the way it worked, I'm not sure if it's still exactly the same now, but you you apply to your Armed Forces Careers Office. Uh, you, you sort of put your application in and then they invite you in for a filter interview. As the name suggests, they're just filtering out the people that they don't quite think are ready at that time. Uh, and I actually got turned away at that, that time, the, the first time round. They said there's a few gaps in my knowledge um, that they would expect for someone applying for the Air Force. Uh, but to work on X, Y, and Z and, uh, you know, reapply when I'm in a better place, uh, which I did. So I went off and I started, I uh, wrote to some the friends that were in and I went and visited a few Air Force stations and then almost cold called some of them and said, I'm, I'm applying, can I come and visit, see what it's all like, learn about the Air Force, the way of life and what the job involved. And, uh, and then I reapplied, got through the filter interview that time much better went to Cromwell and passed everything there. Um, it was quite enjoyable. I quite enjoyed it, actually. Three or four days, the aptitude tests and all these little leadership and problem-solving things. It was quite fun. <clears throat> and then I got put on review uh, three times. So every month, if, if, if you pass, you go into a big pot and then they'll pick out the ones that they think 
that, that, that they want. And every month they reviewed me and they went, eh, you know, we're not quite sure. So then I went in the review pot again and again and again and again. So that happened three times. Then they wrote to me and said, look, you passed everything, but we just don't really think you're motivated. <laughs> um, so reapply again in a year. And I, I really think that, that them saying that was, okay, they didn't quite think I was motivated. But they said reapply in a year to see if I did. And I did, and then went through the filter interview again, got through that, went to Cranwell again, kind of knew what to expect that time, really enjoyed it, had a bit more fun, relaxed a bit, passed again, and, and then finally got in. Brilliant. And within a few days, me first sending off the application form to then starting at Cranwell was about three years. Wow. So, did you finish officer training then? Yeah, so you start off with your basic initial officer training is called I was there for about 10 months and then there was a short holding position waiting for the flying course to start that was about four months then it was back to Cranwell for about six or eight weeks of ground school and then we went up to Linton on Ouse we were living out and flying out of Church Fenton just for Christmas and then we started flying January February March I did one flight a month jeez because there were three courses there. There's only supposed to be two, so they were kind of focusing on the senior course, and we were there. We were just getting in the way, really. So they did one flight a month to keep us current, or not even current, just interested. Uh, and then in March, that was March 2011, the 2010 Defence Review had, had taken a hit, you know, the last previous year, and then it had filtered down to the training that year, so all flying training got paused. And they said, off you go, back to Cranwell again, because you haven't done enough flying to judge you on your flying. So we're going to make you reset the aptitude tests. So this was like the fourth time I'd done them. <laughs> and uh, I got the same sort of score I normally did, which was which was fairly competitive on a normal day. But they increased the, um, you know, the cutoff a bit with what was going on. And they just got rid of the bottom third. And unfortunately, I was one of those mad and was, that was the end of that that must have been horrible because you're after investing so much time and years into the into this career yeah it was absolutely was it was probably one of if not the worst times in my life you know me and my mates there was about 180 of us That's a couple mad. of close mates on the course a couple of close mates on other courses and other people i didn't even know but you know we all shared this thing that yeah it's, it's just awful spent about two weeks in the bar every night just but that was in the day when a pint of beer in the mess cost 80p it's like you're going with a tenner and have a really good time but and it's just you know that was just we literally were just drowning our sorrows we're just like what are we going to do now this is what you've basically wanted to do for your entire life and it's just like nope you're not doing it and were and you nothing, offered and there's nothing you can do about it were you offered another role within the military at all, or was it just your, that? That's it. Uh, basically, it was that's it. If you want to do another role, they said, right, guys, you've got two weeks to go away and prepare, and then go to, back to Cranwell and interview for that other role. Uh, you know, based and you'd be judged pretty much on equal terms with a guy coming off the street. And we just some guys did. They went, well, you know what? I'm going to really try and go with intelligence. A really good friend of mine went into the regiment for four years, uh, and I thought, no, you know what? I joined up to fly. I want to fly. If you're not going to let me fly, that's your problem. I'm, I'm off. So I sort of started researching how to fly in the civilian world, I guess. 
Okay. So I did wonder, yeah. like, when, when that happens after having, like, knockbacks and stuff with the RAF and putting so much time, was there any point where you were thinking, oh, I'm just going to give up now? Oh, yeah. Hugely. Like, that, that period straight after, I, I just really didn't really know what I was going to do. I, I, I didn't think I could afford to learn to fly because I'd heard it cost, you know, like 120 grand or whatever to be a commercial pilot. I was like, I haven't got that kind of money. Didn't really want to ask my parents for that kind of money because that would put them in a bit of a bit of a pickle. And I just was, yeah, really thinking, oh, this has taken me three years to do so far and I've got two two flying hours and now this has happened, you know, is it worth it? I looked at joining the Royal Marines, transferring into the army, um, various sort of things, but of course they were swamped with people that were a bit more qualified with flying or whatever for the Army Air Corps and for the for the, um, uh, the Marines, like long-term you could go pilot. Um, and, and funnily enough, my A-levels weren't, weren't very good. They were good enough for the Air Force, but not actually good enough for the Royal Navy or Marines oh, wow. or the Army. So that was a kind of also, also a, not a good good thing. I looked at joining the Royal Marines as a, as a Marine, not, not as an officer, just as a Marine, and start from the bottom, work up. Looking at all these options and just thinking, oh, what the hell am I going to do now? And um, yeah, not flying was definitely an option at, the, at that time. And then... And then, you know, it's sort of, it's like a bad breakup, isn't it? You, you're really annoyed at the start and then you start to get over it and you start to see things a bit more clearly. A little bit of time, I, I kind of still realised that I wanted to fly whilst I was at Linton living there. Obviously, that's where they were flying the Takano, the guys on basic fast jet training. I haven't got obviously that far, but I went and spoke to the squadron and gave them the sob story. I said, look, I've just been made redundant. Any chance I can have a ride before I leave? And they said, yeah, it'd be fine. We've got a training sortie going up. You know, you can sit in the back. No problem. I did that and I just thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. I just want to fly. I don't want to be doing another thing. So, so yeah. Took the silly decision to carry on flying. <laughs> I do Go sometimes wonder why we do it. it, it, it just, yeah. Sometimes you'd be sat there going, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And how did your eyes then fall on cab air to, to learn how to fly in the civilian world? Uh, so we were looking at flying schools. We did what we thought was our good research, um, myself and a friend, you know, at, at the, at the, in, on the course um, I was on in the Air Force, we decided we were going to learn to fly commercially. So we went around all kind of big schools, trying to find as much advice as we could, spoke to a few people outside as well. And they said, oh, you know, if you want a job, you need to go integrated because modular students are, you know, you're basically bottom of the pile when it comes to jobs. You thought, like, okay, fine. Went around and looked at all the schores, did sort of, uh, you got FTE down in, they were in Spain, uh, CTC, Oxford. And then Cabo was kind of one of them at the time and, and they were a bit cheaper. But we went we went and saw all the schools, most of them a couple of times, spent, spoke to the students, saw how they were all getting on. And all the students at all the schools were, you know, were fine and the airplanes were nice and the course content was all basically the same. Um, and I don't know, we just thought, my cabo just seems nice. Obviously, it's a bit cheaper. It's not like dirt cheap, but it, it's quite a lot cheaper. It's about 20, 25 grand cheaper. The students were all happy. There's loads of students getting jobs. The staff are good. The facilities seem okay. Did what research we could and, uh, and settled on them. They obviously tried to get us to pay up front like all of the schools did, and we said, no way. Agreed these payment plans, you know, we'd pay the course amount split down and be paying it off sort of every other month. We'd make make a payment and putting that on credit cards and doing whatever. Um, and uh, decided on Cabo and to start with, it was great. You know, we were living at a nearby Air Force base because we were still in the Air Force. We were on leave, basically just serving out of our, out, out our time. 
And uh, so that was cheap, just commuting in every day, about half an hour. Got through the ground school, fine. Brilliant. And then towards the end of the ground school, there were these kind of rumblings. <laughs> and then we get called into a meeting on the Monday morning and they just say, really sorry guys, but the company's gone bust. And we're just like, well, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, and that was about uh, eight or nine months after we joined them, probably. So just getting on for about a year after we'd been made redundant from the Air Force. <laughs> but I was really thinking, oh, maybe this isn't for me now. Yeah, so where, so where did, did it come from to, to keep going? Because like, after that, I, I think definitely myself, I was chatting to a mate of mine just before this podcast, and uh, I, I was saying about like how you've been through the mill and everything like that, and I was saying that after the Air Force uh, making you redundant and then the flying school going bust and losing all my money, I, I think at that stage I'd just be like, you know what, I'll go and do something else. Well, you know, that thought crossed my mind again, and, uh, you know, there was a pot of money made available to me and you know really grateful to my parents because some of that was basically an early inheritance and then there was a, a little-ish pot of uh, redundancy money from the air force and some savings that kind of cobbled together and that was the pot which was going to afford caber and we'd spent obviously some of that pot but there was still some of it remaining it obviously hadn't all gone and i was researching the options and i was actually in the mess at Henlow one night we just got back obviously had this news and I was chatting in, in the mess and I said oh, you know what I think I'm just going to go over to the states because you can do a PPL you can do all your owl building it's dirt cheap blah 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 everything's included just go over there and do that and then this guy just on the next table said oh Sam have you thought about um, RAF flying clubs because I was we're still technically in the Air Force at that time and they're basically for service members and it's subsidized flying and I thought, oh no, what's this all about then? And he told me, he said, basically that, you know, it's basically cheap flying. Um, Air Force instructors, they just do it as a bit of fun on the side, you know, have a look, there's, a, there's one at Witten just up the road. So I phoned them up and I said, oh, you know, what's the deal? And they said, yeah, you're, you're more than welcome. This is the rate. And it was 90 pounds an hour. Wow. And for flying, yeah, I mean, even 10 years ago, you'll know that that is dirt cheap. Yeah. There was no landing fees. You didn't really pay the instructor. It was basically, it was included in the fee. They just got a little bit of flight credit. It was £90 an hour. And I thought, ah, you know what? That does it for me. Then you, you do the maths. So that's a PPL. If you can do 45 hours and give or take four and a half grand, this hour building in total, 150 hours, 15 grand. I was, I was like, that's like half as much as I was hoping to spend on it. So I went over there. That was in April 2012. Told them the story. I said, oh, hey, you know, I've been in the Air Force, got made redundant after two hours. Uh, been to Cab Air, they went bust after I'd just done two hours, and now I'm here. And they went, Go away, <laughs> don't want you. We're going to be really careful around the two hour mark. And um, but it, it's just really like the whole thing has just really come good from then. But that school was awesome, the instruction was awesome, the instructors were awesome. Did the PPL in about four weeks. Wow, and we built up until September that year which is when i actually left the air force i did my 150th hour on the day that i left if you like i'd sort of timed it deliberately and uh, and then went off to exeter to do the cpl and the ir and stuff and then whilst i was out building i, I did a tailwheel conversion as well because I, I knew i wanted to get into vintage aircraft so i used up some of my hours to do that 
And then towards the end of my IR, the school that I did the um, tailwheel flying on uh, asked me if I'd like to help them out for the summer as an instructor. All I would have to do is get my instructor certificate and then I could go and do trial lessons and stuff. Basically be free flying. I knew I wouldn't earn much money, but it would be free flying. And I thought, yeah, why not? So I'll go and do that. And Brilliant. Basically a year later, so I finished that in April. Did the first instructional flight in May. So that was May 2013, give or take. That's a lot to cram into 13 months though. Was it, was it hard going? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, but at the same time, it was fun because it was what I'd wanted to do. So I, I first applied for the Air Force. saying it took three years to get in. And then I was in actually three years to the day. So I walked through the gates of Cranwell. Three years later, that was me leaving after being made redundant. So that took like six years mm. to get two hours with the Air Force. And then from April 2012 to September 2012, I did 150 hours, did my PPL, my aerobatics, my tailwheel, had an absolute whale of a time, flew all of my mates, family, flew all over the country, met a load of people. And I was like, this is now what I want to be doing. And you, you kind of, yeah, it's hard work doing a lot of flying, but if flying's what you want to do, like anything in life, if that's what you want to do, it's not really work, is it? It's just... No, it's, dad always said to me, he always said, if you have a, have a job you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's, what, yeah, that's exactly where this comes that. into. Exactly that. Yeah. So it was pretty full on, but it wasn't like I was working at the same time. You had the money set aside. The longer it would take to do the flying, the longer I then had to live for as well and increase running, you know, my running costs, if you call it that, you know, food and living somewhere and whatever. So the suit, the quicker I could do the flying, the less I would spend on living costs. So it just made sense to just get on with it, get it done. Mm. And I did. Brilliant. It's, it's really good. Um, cool. It's such a good story to hear as well, especially after everything that's happened to you. All of a sudden now you've, you've crammed all this into such a little time and everything is on the up again. It kind of made it, um, it, it made it even sweeter, if you like, because of all those things, it was just going wrong, going wrong, going wrong, going wrong. And, and don't get me wrong, my time in the Air Force was great fun. Like outside of the flying, the officer training, all the people I met was great. The flying training started and it just took a nosedive. Um, but then it, it kind of made good and it, it, it started to go on the up. It, it was made it arguably even more worthwhile. So. Yeah. And how did you yeah. get involved then with Ultimate High and Goodwood? And for those listening, you, you'll know that Ultimate High are the ones that have just featured on the Guy Martin documentary. Uh, and they've, they've been on it quite a few times and they've been in some other stuff as well. And so it's, it's quite, a, I would go as far as to say, a prestigious school really to, to go to. Uh, all, the, all the celebrities seem to go there. How, how did you get to become an instructor with them? Well, I originally looked at Ultimate High and I was searching their website. I was going to have uh, an experience flight with them before I joined the Air Force. And I've been reading on their website with their pilots, all these ex-military, like absolute sky gods. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, once I've been in the Air Force, it'd be amazing to go and fly with them. That'd just be awesome. And um, I got introduced to them when I was doing my hour building by a guy that I knew had also been made redundant, but he was much further along. He flew, he was flying at a valley and he flew for Ultimate High on the side he did some of their experiences and he said oh you know the owner a guy called Greeners, who was on the guy martin thing is um, looking for someone to do a bit of ground school work a bit of this a bit of that you know, a bit of working up some some documentation on the ground are you interested and i thought yeah i, I really am so um during my hour building uh, well i got introduced to him and we had a chat and he said this is what he wanted to do basically they weren't paying it was you can have a bit of payment in flying and, and this that and the other and i just took it for what it was it was meeting people 
and getting some experience in an industry where, you know, where flying is their job. And I thought, man, that's just brilliant. I, I know who they are already and I really like them. So I spent three days a week whilst I was hour building down uh, living at Bryce Norton, which is the nearest Air Force base. You could go and do that, chop and change between, just go down and stay as a guest for like three days. Because uh, they were based at Kemble. And I just started doing that work with them. And then it came to sort of helping out on the odd day when they had like an open day or they were doing an exhibition somewhere, I'd go and stand on the stand, you know, help promote them. And I just got to know them over the years and then got to know them quite well. And, and Greeners as well. He's been effectively like a mentor for me as well, you know, keeping an eye on me a little bit, watching me grow up a bit as we fly. We all start off a bit young and irresponsible and then mature a bit as a pilot. He's sort of watched and helped me do that. And then I moved in 2015 to Goodwood as an instructor at the flying school. And that's where Ultimate High were based. Um, and I went to them in the spring and I said, a little bit rusty, I haven't flown over the winter. Can I come and do some refresher training with you? And they said, well, how about one better? You come along, do the refresher training and then start instructing with us as well. Oh, wow. There's no way I'm going to say no to that. So yeah, I, I joined Ultimate High then. Um, you know, on and off in the first year, not like full on. It was a kind of day or two a week here and there when they needed me doing the basic stuff, basic aerobatic instruction, because I'd been doing that for two or three years. Um, and then they put me through a formation training course. Um, and now I fly the Top Gun trips with them as well. We do sort of simulated air combat and formation flights and, uh, yeah, aerobatic experiences, aerobatic training, corporate days, that sort of stuff. All based around you know going upside down in airplanes but doing it safely and properly and they're just it's just an awesome company to fly for it's, that is not a job you know that is just a hobby that pays someone petrol to get there it's just incredible privilege as well exactly i was gonna say even as a hobby that what what a hobby to have doing it with yeah. the aircraft they have with the people they have absolutely yeah and, and the guys there you know they are ex-military at various stages and various guises and, and whatever uh, I sort of ticked the ex-military box, which is which is what sort of allowed it to happen in the first place. But it, it was more about getting to know them over time, proving your worth as a pilot. And um, yeah, I ultimately got asked to join the team and I'm so glad that they asked me. That's amazing. That's so, so cool. Especially, like, like I said, especially with, with, with them and uh, doing that. And then, because you kind of, I, I won't touch on the Warbird stuff yet, but I know, we, we know you, you've done a lot with the Warbird stuff and that's obviously helped, but... I'm just going to touch on the jet stuff quickly. When you decided to go for the jet stuff, after having all this fun flying, it did the jet stuff feel boring at all? Uh, yes and no, to be honest. But even the, the fun flying, I'm not one for just going from here to there in a straight line to have a cup of tea and turn around and go back again. Mm. It, it just doesn't interest me. The flying is about what you do when you're up there, the views, experiences, the, the sort of that the middle bit and being an instructor anyone who is an instructor or has ever looked at being one will know that you don't earn very much money yeah we're talking like nine or ten grand a year full time so it's really not very much and you can't survive on that forever so i've done that fun flying done loads of it and I, the reason i went into instructing first rather than airlines first was to try and build up a base of experience quickly that I could then go and get a proper job, whatever one called a proper job, 
but then kind of refer back to that base of experience. Because if I went to the airlines first, I knew that I would, I might have some money, might have a lot more money, but I wouldn't have the time to build up that massive, yeah, that quite big base of tailwheel and aerobatic and vintage experience. It would take probably 10 or 20 years to get the same amount of experience that I got in five. And I knew that I wanted to fly to fly warbirds. So I took that gamble, did five years full on, go to the airlines. I do enjoy that flying. Um, some bits of it, you, you are just flying in a straight line. That's only going to be so interesting for so long. But what's really interesting about the airline flying is there is a bit of variation of where you go. You're nearly always flying in worse weather than you would be in uh, you know, a little puddle jumper. Um, you're thinking bigger. You are still flying at 500 miles an hour, which is cool in itself. And you're flying a 70 odd ton jet around, which is also cool. Um, so there's, it's fun in a different way. Yeah. It, it's also kind of fun because it does pay quite well and it gives me a lot of time off. And that whole package is fun. Yeah. If you know what I mean. So there's bits of it, yeah, that are boring and that are totally rubbish. But then there's bits of instructing that are boring and totally rubbish. And there's bits of everything, any job, I think, that are boring and totally rubbish. But then there's other bits that absolutely make up for it. Yeah, that's very cool. Like, right. it's like every yeah. job has its moment, doesn't it? Yeah, of course it does. Yeah, you know, completely does. Hmm. So. And then... So now let's touch on the Warbirds, because you've mentioned that and that's what you wanted to do. How did you get involved with, with such a cool piece of aviation? Well, I mean, it all started from that book, really. You know, that book that I read on that holiday, First Light. My interest in aviation had always been Second World War stuff, you know, Battle of Britain, classic stuff, Spitfires and Hurricanes and Lancasters and whatever, you know, the Dam Busters, Battle of Britain, etc. So it always been that. I always knew I wanted to fly them. So once I've, my, my, my kind of aim initially was to join the Air Force and then one day get on the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. And I, I honestly thought that was the only way that you could ever fly Spitfires and, and those kind of things. I then found out that's not the case, but I, so when I was a bit made redundant, obviously then Cab Air went bust, fell into this modular flight training and I thought, well, now I've got the chance in my hour building, I've got some spare hours, if you like, that I can fly with an instructor and still get to my 100 hours pilot in command by the time I get 150. So I'll do a tailwheel conversion and I looked around and found a place that I could go and do it down in Shoreham, uh, open cockpit biplane on a stomp, which is like a tiger moth, but better. And... Um, yeah, did it. And I'm just the first time I sat in this aircraft. It's the first time I'd ever sat in a tail dragger. And you just sat there, the, the tail's on the ground, the nose is right up in front of you. You can't see out in front. You've got this open cockpit, you've got biplane, you know, obviously two, two wings, bracing wires and everything. And I just thought, you know, we have like one of those flashbulb moments. You're like, yes, this is for me. Yeah. And I've just flown them ever since. Um, on my hour building, it was about four times as expensive to fly that biplane than it was the, the Firefly that I was flying up at Witten. And I thought, obviously, I can't afford to be doing that all the time. But I can fly it every now and again. If I can find a friend who wants to come with me, we'll do half an hour, split 50-50. Then, actually, it cost me the same as one hour in 
the Slingsby and I thought, well, in my head, that's the same price. All right, I get one hour or half an hour, but still, it's the same price and the flight's a flight. So I just did that periodically, probably did about 10 hours in it, which is not much, but it was enough. And um, I say then went into that instructing role and I took that because I knew they had that stomp. They also had a tiger moth and a piper cub. And I thought maybe if I could get, you know, 100 hours or so on a tail dragger over a couple of years, that'd be great. That'd be a really good start. And then we'll just see what happened. And I ended up with about 300. So it was awesome. Wow. And then went over to Goodwood and um, they had a Harvard. And that was just a case of right place, right time. But um, they were kind of desperate to fly some, uh, find someone to fly the Harvard. Because their regular guys were all airline pilots. So they only had a day or two a month or whatever. And uh, I just kind of, I'd been there about three months, flew the, flying their Cessnas and also their Cub. And I could, I just sort of, I heard this conversation going on and I thought, sod it, if you don't ask, you don't get. Exactly. And I just knocked on the guy's door, the flying school manager, and I said, look, you can see you're desperate to find a Harvard pilot. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite happy to do it, you know, whether I pay for the conversion and, and you... Then, then I fly it or, you know, you give me a lower hourly rate for flying it in return or, or whatever. You know, I've got 300 hours tail wheel. I'm here if you want me to do it. And you know that I'm here five days a week. Leave it like. And, and they turned around and said, yeah. So Brilliant. Um, that got me kind of the next rung of the ladder. And this kind of this ladder thing, I've spoken about it a little bit on my website. There's kind of three steps on the ladder, on the warbird ladder. You know, your smaller tail draggers. The bigger ones like a Harvard and then your warbirds. And I just got that from first light. You know, I thought that's what he did back then. Okay, there was a war on, but those aircraft are still around today with the end goal of flying a Spitfire or a Hurricane. Why should it be any different? Mm. And I thought, yeah, just go for it. So yeah, I did the smaller stuff and still do. And then the, the medium stuff uh, and still do a little bit. And then Unbelievably, I thought this was going to take me 10 or 20 years, but unbelievably, seven years later, I got asked to fly the Spitfire, and that, that was just awesome. But How did that come about? Did they come to you and say, oh, Sam, we want you to fly the Spitfire? In a way, but it, it, it kind of it wasn't like a, just a one day, he happened to come to me and say, can you do it? it, it, it the roots of it were like many, many years previous. So I don't know if you know a guy called Cliff Spink, a retired air marshal, very accomplished warbird pilot, retired in 2019 from display flying after nearly 30 years. Wow. First flew with the BBMF and then came out and, you know, very, very experienced and nice guy. When I was at Witten doing my PPL, I did not know this at the time, but obviously I knew I wanted to fly warbirds and I was talking with the instructors about it and they just kind of laughed and went yeah yeah whatever so do we all and um they said oh you might want to meet Cliff Spink when he comes in and I knew that name already I thought well Cliff why, why would Cliff be here and they said oh he keeps an airplane in the hangar so I said oh when's he next in oh tomorrow or next Wednesday or wherever it was and I was like there hanging around all day and, uh, and yeah, one of the guys introduced me to him and we had a chat and I sort of explained about wanting to fly warbirds and whatever. And he just said, oh, you should come up with me. I'm flying to Humberside. I can't remember, like next week or whatever it was. 
Uh, I've got to go for a meeting, but you can hang around in the hangar for a couple of hours. There's a Spitfire and a 109, a Bouchon in there. And I was like, yeah, I'm there. Just I'll bring a packed lunch. Lovely. So we went up. He had his Cirrus. We flew up. I did a little bit of flying. It was good. We had a nice chat. Got to know him. I hung around in the hangar for a couple of hours. He went to his meeting, came back, flew back. All very nice. And I just kind of made a real effort to keep in touch with him ever since. Brilliant. Passing by Witten or Duxford, or if he was at an air show, I'd just go and say hello or whatever. And um, over the years, and then with the typhoon, um, I got to meet people in the industry. So went to meet John Romain at the Aircraft Restoration Company to talk about the rebuild, like we did with all the other restoration shops. And then we were exhibiting at air shows. And of course, I'd already been to meet them because of the because of the typhoon, but the air and the typhoon was in at the air show, and I'd just drop in and say hello again, even if it was just for kind of five minutes. Um, and then at the same time, um, I did my display authorization in 2016, but started talking to Cliff about it in 2015. And I knew he was an evaluator for display authorizations. So I wanted to go out of my way to use Cliff because I knew. I knew him already, but I knew he had these links with everybody. And um, so you had a combination of that, you know, the display authorization that I've done with Cliff, the typhoon stuff going on in the background. I've been meeting the right sort of people. I got my DA, did the odd air show with an owner for uh, an aircraft that he had. It got me meeting a few more people. And then it was just time, you know, it's just doing that stuff over and over again, just being around. Mm. And then, yeah, the conversation. I was due to fly up to Duxford in 2018, the May show on the Friday to renew my DA, but then Duxford called it off, said it was too busy. So I drove up instead, which meant I was there that night. Mm. We set up the, the Typhoon exhibit, you know, the stand. So I just went into the pub in the evening on my own and I saw John uh, and his hangar manager, James, and then Anna who I'd also met at a little function a couple of weeks ago and spoke about flying and flying Spitfires. And she said, we can't find Spitfire pilots for love nor money. And I just, like I did at Goodwood, I said, well, I'll do it, jokingly. And she said, yeah, shut up. You need loads of Harvard time. I was like, yeah, I've got a couple of hundred hours of that. And she's like, oh, don't be stupid. You need a CPL so you can do the rides. I said, yeah, I've got one of those as well. And I was just totally joking over wine at dinner and I just didn't think anything of it. But yeah, then I went into this pub and I saw John sort of wave. I'd met him maybe five or six times. He didn't really know me well, but I just met him. So I waved, he ignored me, and I went to the bar. And <laughs> I just thought nothing of it. I thought, oh, it's what it is. He didn't see me, didn't recognize me, whatever. And he came running around. He said, oh, Sam, I'm so sorry. Didn't see, didn't recognize you in the light. Come and join us, we're just leaving. And um, yeah, I did, went and sat down with a beer. And then it, it, it kind of all clicked together. He just said, like you said, Sam, you know, how many hours have you got on the Harvard? I said, well, a couple of hundred. He said, you've got a CPL, right? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, okay, good. I want you to fly my Spitfire. I said, what? And I just knew then that that meeting or that little, that event that I'd been at with Anna a couple of weeks or a month or so before, she'd asked those exact same questions. And then Cliff is, was one of John's most trusted pilots. Who'd obviously known him. Cliff had known me for like five years at that point. Then all the typhoon stuff in the background, it all kind of just knit it together. So, yeah, and obviously I said yes. <laughs> so that event with, with Anna, that was kind of like an unofficial interview, wasn't it? That, that, that's what it sounds I like. Know. 
Yeah, and it was one of those things that, that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't there, if I wasn't putting myself out there. And that was through the Typhoon Project. You know, I'm heavily involved in that. You know, I sort of co-founded it in 2016. And this was an event we'd been asked to exhibit at. It was a dinner, a black tie thing, but we'd, not, we'd been asked to take some sections for kind of out in the drinks out in the lobby. Um, it was an RAF 100 thing. And uh, yeah, I was there, you know, set it all up and went up there with the guys and we got all the bits together and everything. And then I spent the night there uh, and, and was there to talk to people about it and whatever. And I just happened to be sat next to her at dinner. And I'd met her once before, but she didn't remember. But I'd say just pure chance but then it's kind of not because if I wasn't there with the typhoon it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't started the typhoon you know three-ish years before that then the whole that those things wouldn't have wouldn't have happened and she would have been sat next to someone else and somebody else would be fine and spit fine now not me <laughs> or not or, you know just so it's kind of chance but it's also it's just a lot of things going and then they all just kind of merge together and the final piece of the puzzle came together and then now you're, you're flying spits. Well, yeah, final piece of the puzzle came together and then, you know, it was also, I was like, right, when can I start? And they were like, yeah, you know, we'll take it to it, not the Russian, whatever. And then one of their aircraft, they have two two-seaters. And in early 2019, or late 2018, I can't remember, but it got, it, it, it got landed with the undercarriage not fully locked down on one side, so it folded up. And it was out for a season. So that meant I was bottom of the pile because they had just had one aircraft and they needed to focus on doing the rides, getting the paying passengers in. So I, I just turned up, hung around, got a few flights, mainly in the backseat on display practices and stuff like that. And didn't really get going with the conversion until the back end of 2019. Did a few days with rats. You need to do five hours minimum before you can do flight passengers. And I'd done about three and a half in the front seat, something like that. Three, three and a half. Uh, and that was just on one day. Uh, well, no, that wasn't on one day. That was over a few days. But at the three and a half hour point, we were training, doing one day of training that was originally two. Rats had to go to work on the second day. So I thought, oh, it's fine. You know, there's no chance of me going solo today. Drove down. Off we did. Did two trips. Nobody died. And then... Uh, got out and I thought well it's getting on in the day that's surely got to be it we're, we're going home and I said to Rats you know do you want to do you want a brew he said yeah you go and make the brews I'll do the paperwork it's two different buildings at Arco you've got the main hangar where all the paperwork is then the other hangar where the little tea bar is so I went in there and then the refueler came in and he said oh do you want it fueled up for tomorrow I said oh hang on I don't know I'll go next door and see Lisa because she does organizes all the flights Went in there, I thought, oh, this is weird. Rats isn't doing the paperwork. Where is he then? Oh, maybe he's having a wee. I thought, no, whatever. Anyway, I went in to see Rick Lisa. I said, do you want this filled up for tomorrow? And she went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Rats came in from the other hangar with this massive smile on his face. And I was like, I recognise that smile. That's the, I'm about to send someone solo smile, having been an instructor. And then it kind of caught me as well. And I was like really trying to not smile. And he came up and he went, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And she sort of said, oh, we're just going to refuel it. He went, where, where, hang on, Sam, how do you fancy go on your own? And I was just like, what? Um, obviously he said yes. <laughs> but it turns out he hadn't been doing the paperwork at all. He'd been in to see John, whose aircraft it obviously is, uh, and said, look, 
he's not quite done the hours that we need, but we've done two good trips with reasonable landings. The weather conditions are as good as they're ever going to be. Basically, he's as good as he's ever going to be, which I'll take as a compliment. And he said, I think we should just let him go and do, do one on his own. Uh, and John agreed, probably reluctantly, but uh, yeah, I, I just went off and did a solo fire and a spitfire, which was absolutely amazing, really, because it's what I'd wanted to do, you know, all those years ago when joining the Air Force, thinking that I've got to spend 20 years in the Air Force and then somebody might let me touch one or even clean the oil off it. And then seven years later, it happened way, way, way quicker than if I'd have stayed in the Air Force. I just couldn't believe it, really. Wow, that's yeah. what what a story! And when, when you're sat solo, front seat Spitfire, you're looking out left or right. There's an elliptical wing there. There's no one in the back. What is that feeling like knowing it's just you with this this fighter from World War Two? It's 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 really hard to describe. It's just I, I don't, there's, there's almost like no words really to describe it. At the end of the day, it's an aeroplane. It flies like an aeroplane. It flies very nicely. But if you close your eyes and didn't know it was a Spitfire, you'd just be like, right, oh, I'm flying around. This is nice. But you look at that wing and it's so iconic. And you look in the rear view mirror, you know, on the, on the top and obviously single seat, so there wouldn't be a cockpit behind you. But I'm used to having rats like looking at it, pulling funny faces, doing whatever. And, and I was like, no, it's actually definitely not there. This is, it's just amazing. And Every time I've flown in it, whether it's just been in the back or, or in the front doing proper training, um, I've taken my copy of First Light, here it is, which is absolutely knackered. You can see it's got like masking tape down it. And I, and I wrote to Jeffrey Wellham a couple of times. And um, yeah, and, and I've, got, I've got a letter from it. Oh, wow. Um, that I keep in my book. And I've had that on me. I've had it in my leg pocket every time I've gone flying. And I just... That first time it was kind of clouds like he sort of describes in the book, you know, like little white fluffy clouds, little cumulus cloud, perfect flying clouds. And I just, I was up there and I, I didn't mind admitting I had a little tear in my eye and I just, I just tapped down on, tapped down on the leg pocket and I said, Jeff, here we are, we've done it and it's all thanks to you. Because it was his book that made me finally get my finger out and start learning to fly. Wow. And wanting to fly those Spitfires and yeah, it was just... It was just something else. How long did the grin last for afterwards? Because we spoke to Mike Ling and he said that everyone gets a Spitfire grin. How long did that last? Uh, I didn't think it's gone. And it's nearly two years ago. I, it was just one of those things. I mean, for me to get home to Doncaster from um, Duxford, it's just under two hours. And, uh, and I was just on a high. I just was just like, this is amazing. I got in the car, tried to ring my mate. He didn't answer. And I just thought, sort of put this tune on, really sort of banging tune that I like, and I just was driving and driving and driving. I had it on repeat, 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 repeat. And before I knew it, I was just home, and I was like, what is going on? Couldn't sleep that night. It was just, it's just ridiculous. Really was. I, just, I honestly couldn't believe it at the time. I couldn't believe that someone had actually trusted me to take a Spitfire flying. It's worth millions and there are people vastly more qualified than me to fly them. And for some reason they asked me and I was just, just couldn't believe it. Amazing. It's yeah. kind of like been inducted into an elite club because it seems like loads of people are flying, have flown these things, but, but they haven't really. It, it, it's a very small percentage of people. Yeah, you can, I mean, obviously if you've got enough money, 
You can go and fly one in the back. You can do a conversion course, um, but you're talking like 50, 60,000 pounds and most people don't have that money. And, and I certainly didn't. And, and I even looked at that, you know, right when I was setting out, you know, how much is it going to cost to fly a Spitfire? And I, I researched it and it was actually Boltby that did the conversion mm. They said, you need so many hours on a small tail wheel, so many hours on a harbour, then we'll let you do this course, which is 10 hours at six grand an hour. And then you can, then you'll be solo standard, but you might not be able to solo it because of the insurance. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, Christ alive, that is a lot of money. It's a huge amount of money. How can anyone ever afford to do that? And I kind of realized that actually, if you're having to pay for the training, mm. it kind of means you're not ready. Because if you're ready, someone will ask you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like in the war, there were no two seat Spitfires. I know I did the training on a two-seater, but that's because they are there now. But if you're thinking, right, I'm going to fly a Spitfire, I'm going to pay, do 100 hours in a Tiger Moth, 50 hours in a Harbour, then I'm going to pay 10 hours in a Spitfire doing training. That's not really the right way around doing it. Do that, that pre-flying, get your CV in the right place. And then when you're ready, if you've met the right people, if you've done the right flying, you've sort of proved yourself within the scene a little bit, that you're not just in it for the thrill, you're in it for the long, long haul, a bit like being involved with a Typhoon sort of showed that then, then someone will ask you and it might take 10 years 20 years 30 years but if you keep doing those things then sooner or later you'd have to be very 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 unlucky for to not be asked to to do that and and i don't know why i was asked seven years after my first solo but but i was and i'm definitely not looking back on it and but then that was we did another flight in it the following week but not another solo flight because the weather got bad just kind of as we landed. Then it went in for its winter maintenance. And then spring 2020, we all know what happened. Mm. Um, COVID came along and the world ground to a halt. And I was supposed to fly passengers last year, all year. Might have had, I don't know, 20, 50 hours on the Spitfire by the end of last year. But then mm. I, I didn't even touch it, you know, stayed at home. That's terrible. So, but hey, I'm not complaining. I've got to fly one so. Brilliant. Have you actually flown any passengers in it yet? Nope. Oh, wow. That's going to be a, nope. a, a moment to remember when you do. Yeah, it is. And, and you're kind of, you know, taking two steps forward with a conversion and then one step back with the uh, with the lockdown and the pandemic and everything, you know. So we're going to have to go back in. I've spoken to rats about it and whatever. And it's still on the cards. It's just a case of when, you know, at least a couple of flights. I've still got to get to five hours in it. I've only got three and a half, I think. Mm. So got to get to that five, which is good because that's about three trips. Um, and then then we'll see what happens. But yeah. uh, really looking forward to it as and when. And even if it takes two years from now, it, it's still half the time that I thought it was going to take me the plan A, you know, via the Air Force. So, yeah. It's nearly to go as far as, as a blessing to say that, that when the Air Force made you redundant, everything has kind of worked out a lot better than, than it could have done. I would go as far as to say that the redundancy from the Air Force was the best thing that ever happened to me wow. in terms of my flying career. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. And people said to me at the time, he said, try not to worry. You know, we can see that you're really upset, but you'll look back on this in 10 years time. And it'll be the best thing that ever happened to you. And I just basically said, yeah, yeah. no way. And what are you talking about? My life is over. And that was 2012. You say in 2019, seven years later, Blue obviously got married. Obviously, I can't forget that. Um, mustn't, mustn't forget that. And, you know, the whole Dax over Normandy thing was involved in that. 
flew the Spitfire and I just thought, oh, bloody hell, actually, they were right. They were right. This, it was the best thing that happened to me because none of those things, I, I wouldn't have done any of those things if, if I'd have stayed in the Air Force. I might have gotten the DBMF one day, but it's a tiny percentage of a tiny percentage that do that. Yeah. Almost certainly wouldn't have been me. So all of these things would not have happened if, if I hadn't got made redundant. So, so yeah, it was definitely the best thing. It's exactly a, what, what a story to have. But go stay, staying with, with the Warbirds for a second, um, the Spitfire, even though you haven't touched that for, for a long time, you have had your hands on quite a, an iconic bird also in the last couple of weeks, uh, which I believe was a Lancaster. Yeah, that's, that's another like pinch me moment. It's just, yeah. Yeah, the, the Lancaster, uh, Just Jane over at East Kirkby. Um, phenomenal aeroplane. Obviously, I haven't been flying it because it's not airworthy yet. I'm sure it could fly mm. if, if you really wanted to. You'd have to connect up the ailerons or, in fact, put some proper ailerons back on it because they're just cardboard. They're like paper mache at the moment because the other ones are being restored. But but she's all there. She's all complete, you know, raring to go, this aeroplane being rebuilt bit by bit. Yeah, absolutely incredible. That's so cool. It must be a bit different as well because it's something a lot bigger than, than what you're used to. Well, but when you do 737, but uh, compared to the Warbird side of it, it's it's the biggest thing yet, I think. It is. And um, it, it's handling, actually, is quite similar, but obviously a lot bigger, to the Stomp or the Harvard. If you, because some Harvards, you have a lockable or an unlockable tailwheel, where the sticks, if you unlock the tailwheel, it's a real nightmare because the tail's just going everywhere. You know, you, you turn a bit and it's, it's just like drifting in a car, you know, it's just, just on ice. And, and it's a little bit like that. It's effectively a sort of free castering tailwheel with four Merlins over two rudders uh, and you're steering with, with differential brakes and rudder and power. And it's quite a handful on the ground. You know, there's, there's all the sort of things you learn when you do a tailwheel conversion about you're paying much more attention to where the wind is coming from, the prop wash, where the stick is, all that sort of thing. And that's really applicable. You would think it's a big 30 odd thousand pound airplane that you just, it stays in a straight line because it's so big. It just absolutely does not, it, <laughs> you know. You've got differential power set, you know, if you've got a little bit less on the left, a little bit more on the right, it's just gonna turn to the left. And if the wind's from the left as well, it, it will actually weathercock the airplane. Wow. Those big, big rudder fins, you know, just will get weathercocked. It weathercocked me on that first day. So it's it's a very good demonstrator of tailwheel sort of, uh, what you call it, practices, I suppose, on the ground. Wow. It's, so yeah. it's like you said, it's so big. You don't think of it for moving. But then I suppose because it's so big, there's more presented to the wind rather than, than the little and dinty. Yeah. Yeah, and it's right. So, it's, and that's just a huge privilege, even to just be taxiing around um, such an iconic airplane. And there's so few of those. You know, Spitfires are awesome. They are absolutely awesome, incredible airplanes. But there's quite a lot of them. Yeah. And something like a, a, a Lancaster is really very unique. There's only one airworthy one in this country. You know, that's with the BBMF. Treated, you know, treated rightly with kid gloves with the by the Air Force and the Air Force people get to go anywhere near that. And then there's this one, Just Jane, that is going to fly in kind of five to eight years when the money's raised. And that's a huge, 
privilege to be involved in that. So cool. Like I said, that, many that people. Like... About, you know, that, that came about again. It has its root in the redundancy because um, I got to know Andrew Panton, who kind of runs it there, through being involved in the typhoon restoration. I wouldn't have been involved in the typhoon restoration quite probably if I hadn't been made redundant. I wouldn't have done all the tailwheel flying if I hadn't been made redundant. I wouldn't have got a job with TUI and then moved to Doncaster if I hadn't been made redundant. And it was that move up north that prompted him to say, oh, right, now you can come and join our team because I was in the right part of the country. So, you know, none of that would have happened if I didn't get made redundant. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. What a, what a great thing to come out of such a, a tough time of, of, of your life at the time. Uh, but you mentioned... Yeah. The typhoon restoration can you tell us a bit more about that because i think this is something that that's amazing um you've got your own coffee as well that's that's done by warbird coffee and co um and i, I think this thing when you guys will be finished is, is amazing yeah how long have you got <laughs> as long as you want <laughs> well i mean yeah i i was it, it all came about um Again, when I'd been made redundant and I was researching then my grandfather because I had a bit more time. I knew, I knew he was there, I had his medals and a bit of his service history, but I didn't know as much as I wanted to know. And uh, so I was researching it and managed to find a collector in Holland who had recovered parts of the aircraft he was flying on the day that he got shot down. And force landed. So I found the serial number of the aircraft, found a little crash report, found where it was, found a website that had a bit of information about it and whatever, and found this guy on a forum. I don't use forums. This is the only time I have ever used a forum that said, oh, I've got parts of this airplane serial number, my granddad's one, MN252, um, looking to sell them, blah, blah, blah. And I looked. The, the date was like a year previous to that. And it was the only post this guy had ever made on this forum. I just thought, oh, they're probably gone by now, no chance. But So I registered, left a message with my email address, which was kind of, it was public, and said, you know, please contact me. And then this guy, this collector in the UK, contacted me and said, oh, did you have any luck, you know, getting hold of that guy in Belgium? Because I'm trying to track down Typhoon bits. And we got to chatting, and I said, oh, you know, what, what are you doing with all these bits? And he said, oh, I've been building up this collection. I've got this rear fuselage from RB396. I've got these firewalls and the carriage legs, bits of cockpit, all this, that, and the other. Quite a lot of stuff that he built up over about 15 years or so, on and off at that point. And I thought, that's really interesting. Um, and kind of left it at that. Then the guy from Holland got in touch with me and said, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've actually sold all those bits to Kermit Weeks over in the States. You've probably heard of him. He runs like a fantasy of flight, got a massive collection of bits. And um, but he said, oh, since your message, I've kept back a couple of parts, um, cockpit parts that your granddad would have touched. Um, I said, oh, that's, that's really nice of you. What are you going to do with them? He said, no, no, I've kept them to send to you. What's your address? Oh, wow. And I was, oh, that's wow, amazing. And then, you know, a week or so later, these little parts, they're only small, there's a, a fuse box, but it's still, you know, those glass fuses. Yeah. Um, it's got two of those in it and they're both intact. Um, it's got a little bent cockpit-like fitment, little circular thing, and a, 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 a sort of lever from the throttle quadrant. So we've got these parts and I thought, oh, that's nice, brilliant. And um, so I just emailed this collector guy again. I said, oh, you know, that guy's got back in touch with me. He said he sold the bits to Kermit Weeks and I've got these parts now. And we got to talking again. 
And I sort of said, you know, what are you doing with these, all these bits? They can't surely just be in your garage. And he said, yeah, they are. <laughs> and I said, well, what are you doing with them then? You know, what's the plan? He said, oh, well, you know, it, it, I can't rebuild it to Airworthy because I've got all the bits, you know, I've got loads of drawings, got all this stuff, but we, I haven't got the money. And I sort of knew roughly how much he was talking, but I said, well, how much do you think it's going to cost then to get it Airworthy? He said, oh, about five million. So I said, oh, well, if that's all it takes, if you've got bits, all the bits, and all it takes is the money, then let's do it. He went, well, what do you mean? I said, well, we've raised five million quid. How hard can it be? Um, and that was in 20, so back end of 2014. And uh, and he and I sort of worked together. I, I kind of did the fundraising, the public side of thing, trying to get it into magazines, set up a supporters club, do the social media, build up like a public audience. He was uh, very much a head in the books, go and find a bit of junk in a scrapyard kind of bloke. Uh, and I kind of did all of the rest. And we found that I did a Facebook page in 2015 and they got, really quite big quite quickly and we sort of thought we're onto something here so set up the charity to kind of give people reassurance that they weren't just giving money to two random blokes off the internet and um yeah formed the charity hawker typhoon preservation group in 2016 had a public launch uh at the bolt b flight academy which is a good word because i was still instructing there at the, at the time and about 150 people there in magazines and a couple of typhoon veterans where and we got an engine, Napier Sabre, which is really rare. The following February, we got that. And then we started out at air shows that year. That would have been 2017, you know, merchandise, supporters club stuff, whatever. Established a base, a big sort of industrial unit in 2017. Did a couple of private crowdfunders and a public crowdfunder. And then in 2019, started the rebuild. Wow. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just an absolutely massive project now. It's kind of got a worldwide following. We've got people from almost every country in the world, you know, country that has internet, we've got someone there following it. If it hasn't got internet, we've probably, they've probably seen us in a magazine. It's massive. We've almost raised a million pounds. We're about 20 grand short of a million at the moment. Oh, wow. Starting from scratch. So, you know, it's really good. There's a really good team of people now. They, the original collector guy he's left other people that i founded it with they've left people have come had a go found out it's quite hard work they've left other people have come found out it's quite hard work and stayed and then those are the people that are really taking it forward now you know we've got a decent team reaching out to people raising the money i'm saying we're a fifth of the way there i suppose when you look at it in money terms we need five we've done one so we're getting there Brilliant. and what what can the public do to to, to give you a hand Give us loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it is an unfortunate fact that doing this rebuild costs an absolute fortune. We're not making any money out of it. We are all volunteers. We don't get a penny. Um, we've engaged the aircraft restoration company to oversee the rebuild. The first section is that rear fuselage. That's the identity. That's on the Isle of Wight being rebuilt at the moment. We're spending twenty thousand pounds a month on that, and you'd think that's a lot. It's actually not that much in these kind of things, but it, it you know, it's progress and um, it just costs money. So we've got a supporters club, we're unveiling some new sort of supporter packages very soon, actually. Um, loads of merchandise, loads of stuff on our website, give donations. If you can't even afford, you know, a couple of quid here and there, we're, we're just starting up what we're calling the Sabre Club, because it's a Napier Sabre engine. 
So it's two quid a month, direct debit, contribution, you get a newsletter, it's you sort of just playing your part, two quid, you know, you can afford that, most people. Obviously, at the moment, it's a bit more difficult. People are in sort of difficult times, we, we kind of get that. But from little or large donation, you know, the more money we get, the sooner we get it, the sooner she will be in the air. And if you join on one of these kind of supporter packages, you get various benefits from just getting the newsletter to come into exclusive sort of events and being able to go and see the rebuild right through to the higher levels where you get a you know, complimentary invite to the first flight event, the official first flight event, which we, you know, we're even we're thinking of now. It's still probably three or four years in the future, but we've got to start thinking about it. Um, namespaces on the aeroplane when it's finished and it could be yourself it could be a family member a lot of people have got a veteran in their family that may have passed away or maybe even still be around but to do with the typhoon they'll have a little namespace on the aeroplane the, the top package is to go um, and actually various other things but the lead thing for that is to have a formation flight with the typhoon when it's finished in a spitfire you know so it's kind of almost money can't buy stuff and it's just it's just money so ultimately everything has to come back to money with this project, whether it's someone giving it to us or someone introducing us to someone who introduces us to someone and someone and someone who then gives us a bit of money. Or we've said for a long time, if everyone that followed us on social media, which is about 55-ish thousand people now, did the two quid a month, that would be every penny we need. So a lot of people giving a little can be the same as a few people giving a huge amount you know and it's a kind of mixture of both so but the first thing is just go and have a look on the website dead easy typhoon.com tells you what we're doing how you can support us get involved um because we feel it's a pretty awesome airplane and something that's overlooked in the history books you know most people don't know what a typhoon is they think it's something to do with some wind somewhere or it's a Eurofighter, and it is, but the Eurofighter Typhoon got its name from the Hawker Typhoon. And the people that flew them and operated them and built them and even designed them and delivered them, you know, the ATA girls and guys, just all forgotten about because it's all Spitfires and Hurricanes and, and that's it. So we just feel that they've kind of been overlooked. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's fantastic what you guys are doing with this. I've read up on it. Uh, I've met some of the guys from, from the restoration, had a chat as well, and I was just blown away by by the stuff that, that's going on. I first heard about it a couple of years ago. I was in my local Sainsbury's, and um, they've got, you, you've, you've got a, a thing on the, the notice board there as well. And, nice. Um, yeah, it was the first time I kind of came in contact with it. And then through work, met one of the captains who, who was quite involved. And, um, yeah, he, speaks very highly of it and I sat down with him last week and had a proper chat about it and I couldn't believe what was going on. It's very, very cool. Yeah, it's um, it's totally different. It is completely unique. There is not likely to be another one, certainly not powered by an AP Sabre in the world. Um, there is a project in Canada and we're trying to work sort of closely with them. Um, they, they don't have an engine and obviously we only have the one. It's not like something you can share. So, you know, there, there is another project the other side of the Atlantic um, but you know this one has genuine it is a genuine combat veteran significant portions of the airplane rather than very small parts um, being rebuilt into something that's not necessarily a, a rebuild if I can say that you know uh, and this is I say it's a genuine combat veteran and we reckon we're going to be able to use about 80 percent 
wow. of that rear fuselage structure on a large percentage of the other donor parts as well. So it's going to be a very original airplane when it's finished. Um, obviously, there's going to be lots of new parts. It's, it's got to be safe to fly, but it's going to be a very original airplane. And it, a Typhoon hasn't been flown since 1946, I think was the last time. They were literally all just scrapped at the end of the war. Wow. The Napier Sabre carried on in the Tempest, Tempest 5s, but yeah, the, up until about the mid 50s. But so the engine and, and more importantly, the airframe, you know, not since the 40s. So it's, it's something that's, um, you know, it, it's pretty unique and it's, it's, it's kind of world news, I think, you know, certainly when it's flying, but that's when all the hard work will be done because the hard work really is not flying it when it's finished or even keeping it flying, it's getting it flying in the first place, raising awareness and raising money. And you've got, you've, you've got the Harvard time, you've got the Spitfire time. Is your plan to, to fly this yourself once it's all airworthy and ready to rock and roll? Um, I would love to, yeah. And, and I certainly that's one of the reasons why I got involved at the start. You know, it's back in the early days, I was trying to get into Warbirds and I thought, oh, sod it, if no one's going to let me fly their Warbird, I'll build my own. <laughs> and uh, sort of Typhoon, I thought, yeah, great. But that was a kind of naive thing back then and it's, it's not that simple, but... I would love to fly it. The guys on the team want me to fly it. But what I will say is I'll only fly it if people like John Romain and the people that have got huge amounts of experience of flying these kind of aeroplanes. If they say I'm ready by then, then I'll fly it. If they say I'm not, I'm going to listen to that and I'm not going to be silly. Yeah. So I would absolutely love to. And we're going to actually put those parts from my granddad's aeroplane in it as well, incorporate those in the rebuild. So they're going to be in there. We might even leave the clock kind of all mangled and bent from the, from the force landing, not the clock, sorry, the light. Um, just really add those little bits of authenticity to it. Um, and he did his last flight, interestingly, from RAF West Hampton, which is now Goodwood, oh, wow. which is where I was instructing. And I've obviously flown the Tiger Moth and the Harvard, which is what he would have flown. He flew the Spitfire. I've managed that, luckily. Um, I'd, I'd love to fly a Hurricane because he flew them as well. And then if I could do the Typhoon from Goodwood even, you know, on the anniversary of his last flight, maybe even painted in his colours, that would just be a pretty cool story, I think. That'd be a very, very cool story. You've, you've got all of the same warbirds in, in your in your logbook that, that he flew. It would be, uh, be awesome, you know. It'd be so, so cool. Right? And yeah. so what, what has been the best moment for you so far throughout everything that, that you've done flying-wise? What has been your, your most favourite moment or is there a moment that sticks with you? Uh, I would say... There's been a couple. There's, there's obviously that first time I spoke about earlier, the first time I sat in a tail dragger in that stomp, that biplane down at shore and just sat there, that view, just incredible. Um, and Dax over Normandy was a real highlight in 2019. So I was flying a Harvard and uh, did a couple of passenger flights throughout the, the days. That, that, was, that was fun, obviously. But then on the mass formation flight where they all went off and heading down to Normandy on the 5th of June. There was a slight cock up with the timings and I ended up getting airborne a little bit late. Um, just after the last DC-3 got airborne. So he was trying to catch up the rest of the pack and they weren't slowing down for him because they were on a schedule as well. And 
I was trying to catch them all up, and I thought, no, sorry, we're never going to catch them up. And we're not that got not got that much excess performance in a Harvard to a DC three. Uh, and so, so I dropped back on this straggler guy, and we just flew down to the south coast together. Really quite close formation, really nice, um, waving at each other. And then one of the guys in the back pulled a Mooney and stuck his bum up against the window. <laughs> no, it was just great. I was just flying there, and I was like. Oh, oh yeah brilliant <laughs> you know and we just flew down together it was really great it was in um authentic d-day colors um loads of photos and uh it, it turns out then that that aircraft was involved in d-day in those colors and then someone contacted me on social media a few days later when i put a photo up saying that's um the name on the uh on the nose is my grandma and it was my granddad that was flying that aeroplane on D-Day in those colours, how awesome, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that was really, really cool. And we flew down to Beachy Head, he carried on, we peeled off, did a barrel roll and, and went home. And uh, that that was awesome, awesome experience, that whole three or four days. I just qualified at Tui, actually, just finished my line training. And, uh, and I was driving down to Duxford and they said, oh, well, now that you're qualified, can you come in tomorrow on your days off and we'll pay you loads of money to come and do this flight because we can't get anyone to do it. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm going to Duxford and I'm, I can't turn it down for any money in the world and, and I'm so glad it didn't. But And then obviously the, the Spitfire, flying that um, solo was was awesome. You know, just being up there, the view, the wing, Jeffrey Wellham, the book, the kind of, I don't know, the sort of sense of achievement that it, it kind of gave me that I set out to actually do a very specific thing. Took a gamble with whether to go to the airlines first or go into the GA side and do instructing for a period of time to hopefully one day get the experience to allow me to do the warbirds and whatever. And it sort of paid off. Um, it was, yeah. Until I then realised I had obviously to go back and land and that's the tricky bit. And then you kind of just shit yourself basically and you think oh god because they were all out everyone in the hangar was out watching me start up and take off and take too long to taxi out and wait for someone to land and nearly overheat and blah 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 and i just knew that as soon as i, I came back they'd all be out with their scorecards ready as well and i just thought i, I enjoy the moment while i'm here and then yeah and that was that was awesome so there'd probably be three things Amazing. It's so, yeah. so cool. What a career. And for anyone who's going through a tough time now, um, with, with everything the aviation industry has happened so far, what advice would you give to them? It would just be to not give up and to keep picturing the reason why you're doing what you're doing. Keep visualising yourself doing it. Because if you visualise yourself doing it, you've got a hell of a lot more chance of, of it happening. If you say to yourself, oh, I can never fly a Spitfire, I just can't do it, no, no one can do that, then of course you're never gonna do it. But if you say, you know what, this is why I started out, that's what I wanna do, be sensible and research the way into it. Because there is a way, there is a path, it's not like scripted, but there's a fairly sort of decent, obvious path that most people follow, variations, but it's pretty much the same. And, and just keep working towards it, you know, and don't give up. Like, it feels crap. It really does when you've been made redundant or even furloughed for a year or, or whatever. It feels totally rubbish. But um, as long as you're just taking a little step forward every now and again, you're getting closer. You're getting much closer than everyone who's just sitting at home thinking about it, dreaming about it. If you're actually going out there and doing it, getting involved, get to know people, spend the time, build up the experience, 
and just keep visualizing why you're doing it. That gives you something to um, help you not give up, I think. Yeah, that's brilliant. Sam, thank yeah. you so much for talking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and hearing your story. And uh, best of luck with the Typhoon rebuild and, and everything that, that's coming your way with the Spitfire. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. No problems. Thank you very much.